0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this book. We thank you for the gift of this time together tonight. Lord, we thank you for um, those who are on this journey with us. We pray that you would bless our time together tonight and that you would use this time to strengthen our faith in you, to help us to understand the things of your kingdom more deeply and to live more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So again, uh, Happy Easter to everyone. We are still in Eastertide, uh, which is the great 50 days of Easter, so uh, we have a lot to look forward to. Don't think Easter's over, uh, because Easter Sunday has come and gone. So as usual, I'd like to begin with reading together our verse from Second Peter, and I would encourage you to say that with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this is one of those times where uh, when you look at this verse through the lens of Easter, uh, it makes you realize how much we have to rejoice in in Christ's resurrection from the dead and what that has accomplished for us. So I want to say a word of welcome to all the folks who are new. Uh, we have new folks that join us each week, either live or on the podcast, and. Um, coming from all over, we had somebody this last time who's joined from Prince Edward Island up in Canada. Um, so we're delighted to have you wherever you are. And if you're new, just a quick word about how to approach this class. There are three ways to do it. The first is what we call on the beach that means you just show up when you feel like it. You don't do any work. You don't have to read anything. There's no test. There's no exam. There's no grade. We're just glad to have you. Um, If you want to watch TV um, while you are doing this so long as you're muted, that's all good. We're just glad to have you. Secondly, you can choose to snorkel, which means that you are trying to pay attention and that there are certain parts that you find interesting where you want to do a deeper dive. And there are resources that I send out each week um, that will enable you to do that on some of the lessons. And then the third way to do this class is scuba diving. Uh, You will find that um, I am a little bit or a lot of a nerd about some of the subject matter And so there are, from time to time, some really wonderful scholarly articles and other things that I will uh, bring up in class and then send you links to. And if you're scuba diving, you are welcome to go down that rabbit hole with me on all of those things. So uh, you are welcome, very welcome, uh, no matter which level you want to participate at. Um, I would encourage you, if you're not on the email list, to Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and ask to be added, uh, because that has a summary and resources that comes out each week. Um, Just a word, especially for the new folks, about how to read this book. Uh, This is not a book to sit down on Sunday afternoon and read from cover to cover. Uh, It was, of course, originally given as broadcast talks. It needs to be chewed on and digested, so it is one of those things where you will find that if you read it out loud, that will be very helpful in understanding and pacing yourself. The other thing is that doing it one chapter at a time um, will also be really helpful where you think about it and uh, allow yourself time to chew over it um, between chapters. And then lastly, another great resource is the C.S. Lewis Doodle on YouTube. Um, This is a great way uh, to be able to get a little extra help or to uh, look through a slightly different lens and learn a little bit more about what Lewis is talking about. So um, tonight's music, um, I'm going to play this, and we will see whether you can figure this out. This is something that is more familiar than usual, Um, and we'll see if we can get it loud enough where you can hear it. If you think you know what it is, uh, send me a chat. So I think that there are probably some people that have guessed that, if I can get my chat to open here. Uh, So uh, that is a good guess from Elizabeth Scott, thinking it's something by Rudder um, that you can't hear very clearly. Um, So it's not Rudder, but it sounds like Rudder. Uh, What that actually was is a setting of the great hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, Um, that was written, this particular setting, the music written by Howard Goodall. And I would encourage you to listen to it when the uh, email comes out with the link, because it is a just gorgeous setting. And it was interesting, because when Goodall was interviewed about why did he decide to write yet another tune for one of the most popular hymns written by Charles Wesley, he said he had not really intended to set out to write this, but that it was more or less given to him, and he felt that God had spoken to his heart about it and then just given him this music. And it's a really exquisite setting, and it's very relevant for what we'll be talking about tonight. So uh, I will explain a little bit more about that as we move along through the class. So just a quick review of context, Um, England in wartime and the BBC, Lewis is coming in in the midst of the Blitz and the Baedeker bombing in 1942, um, into the BBC headquarters at the risk of his life to give these talks. Um, He is in book three, and he's finished um, these other books that we've talked about, but they are things that he's calling to mind and that are very much present because Lewis is building a logical argument where you want to hold all of this in in front of you all the time. So the first book, Right and Wrong, is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Lewis is trying to see what we can find out just from observable facts about right and wrong and the meaning of the universe. And he talks about the law of human nature, that we know that we should act a certain way and we usually don't. And, And that end of book one, Lewis had some correspondence with the BBC talking about how important it was for the church to learn to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood, to translate it into ways that people could understand in the current age. So in the second book, the BBC asked Lewis to address what do Christians actually believe, And that's kind of a remarkable thing today to think about um, a broadcasting organization asking for someone to explain on the air in detail what the Christian faith is. But he did that and he did that in a remarkably winsome way. And he started off with the argument saying that um, the idea that we have of just and unjust, fair and unfair, if the whole universe had no meaning, we'd never be able to answer those kinds of questions. And he uses the image of the invasion. He says, we're in enemy-occupied territory. Christianity's the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in a campaign of sabotage. And that when you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless. And that is why the enemy wants to do all in his power to stop you from going. And that was one of the glorious things this Sunday is to have Um, not a full church because we can't quite do that yet, but more people than we've had in a long time. Lewis then goes on to talk about God and free will and says free will, even though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. That God's designed us to run on himself and there is no such thing as happiness or peace apart from God. And then he has the trilemma, Uh, one of Lewis's most famous quotations, saying that we cannot say Jesus is just a good teacher. Jesus is just all right with me. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Lewis then goes on to talk about why Jesus came and that it wasn't just to teach, as important as the scriptures are, but that what Jesus came to do is what we've just celebrated walking through Holy Week and Easter, that he came to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And that atonement that he accomplished is the reason for his coming. And as Lewis said, uh, there are great truths and paradoxes in Christian belief. And this verse from Philippians sums it up. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is a joint project. As Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, grace is not opposed to effort. And as Christians, we are to be seeking to imitate Christ, to imitate those who are the saints of the faith. So that brings us to book three, uh, the one that started in the fall of 1942. And this book is about Christian behavior. And it is really relevant these days. It's quite remarkable. So Lewis first talks about the three parts of morality. And I love the little quote he starts with saying there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like and said, As far as he could make out, God's the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And that's a lot what the world thinks. The world does not have this idea that morality, um, the Ten Commandments and things like that, are actually God's owner's manual for us, and that when we follow them, we thrive, we experience joy and completion and fulfillment. He uses a great analogy about ships sailing in formation and how that they must sail um, with three things in mind. One is keeping the proper position with respect to the other ships, the second is making sure their own internal functioning and compasses and rudders are good, so they don't suddenly lose control and crash around and wreak havoc. And then, thirdly, make sure they're sailing to the right place. So that brings up fair play and harmony among individuals, tidying up, harmonizing the things inside each individual, and the general purpose of human life as a whole. And today. This is such an important issue because we hear so often it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. But the problem with that is that we're only thinking of one level of morality, fair play and harmony between individuals. But as Lewis says, there's much more to it than that. And our belief about the universe and the purpose and meaning of life really comes into play here. Lewis says religion involves a series of statements about facts that have to be true or false. If they're true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. And he says, this boils down to thinking about, who do you belong to? If you are literally the captain of your own ship, if there is no God, then states, nations, and civilizations are more important than individuals. But if Christianity is true, the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important— For he or she is everlasting, and the life of a civilization compared with his is only a moment. So all three of those levels are important. So we as Christians need to re-engage the truth and beauty of God's law. We need to recover our sense of wonder at the beauty of God's law and what life would be like if people actually lived that way. But we also need to be building bridges— We need to be ministers of reconciliation, not judging people who differ from us, but reaching out to them and trying to invite them to come and see, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, We talked about the cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, um, things that sound very old-fashioned, which is part of the problem today that we think those are out of vogue, uh, but the world would be a much better place if we actually practiced those. Social morality, Uh, there's a lot here that affects what's going on in the world right now. And part of what Lewis says here is Christianity does not have a detailed political program, and that the church is not here to give people a lead about politics. There are some clues in the New Testament about what a Christian society would look like, and he says that most of us would probably not really like that. And that the problem that we have is that we are mostly interested in these questions because we want to justify ourselves. So part of what Lewis is saying here is that a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it, and we're not going to want it until we become fully Christian. He says, I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. So I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, For the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what Lewis is saying here is that Christians need to live out the gospel in their individual lives and all their relationships. And that if we would do that, we would see that the culture would turn. The next chapter is on morality and psychoanalysis. And here, basically, Lewis is saying the philosophy of Freud, which has become so prevalent, is in direct contradiction to Christianity that all of Freud's ideas um, are opposed to Christianity. The role of psychoanalysis idea of learning about yourself and making progress um, and being able to live your life by talking through your problems, that technique of psychoanalysis, Lewis says, is neutral. But the problem is when Freud goes beyond that and starts talking about worldview and how um, religion is a crutch, and all of these other things. And he says part of the thing that is so important for us to understand is that each person is given raw material when they're born. Some people are born into a wonderful situation where it's easy for them to come to faith, others are not. And that God looks at that raw material um, and what we've done with it, and that that is really important. That's part of the reason why judging others is wrong. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. We only see the results that a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God only judges on what we've done with the raw material. So part of what Lewis is concerned about here is keeping eternal perspective. The mark that each action, seen or unseen, leaves on that tiny central self which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. And he closes with this whole idea of consciousness of sin, that when a man or a woman is getting better, he or she understands more and more clearly the evil still left within. When a man or woman's getting worse, he or she understands their own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. And as James Montgomery Boyce put it, the mature Christian knows he's always living in Romans 7 apart from the Holy Spirit. He knows dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something he's attained once for all, but that it's the result of a daily struggle and constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? Is it an awareness of how good we are becoming? Or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are so we will constantly turn to and depend on Jesus Christ? If we are mature in Christ, we know it's the latter. The more conscious we are of our sin, the more it will drive us to depend on Christ and not rely on our own strength. So the next chapter that we took on last time before our little break for Holy Week was on sexual morality. And Lewis talks about the old virtue of chastity. And the interesting thing is chastity used to be thought of as a virtue, and now it's something that people get made fun of for. Um, Lewis distinguishes chastity from modesty, and then he says biblical chastity is defined uh, very clearly and he says, the, there's no getting away from the old Christian rule, either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And he says, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity's wrong or our sexual instinct has gone wrong. And he then goes on to say that he believes the instinct has gone wrong. And he says that our appetite for sex is greatly out of proportion, and he compares it to eating food that we might want to eat a lot, but we stop, but with sex that it's not like that and that people become addicted to it. And he says part of the problem with the cultural view of sexuality is that we have been told over and over again that if we would only abandon Victorian ideas and bring sex out into the open, that all of the sudden, everything would get better, and that people would be free and happy. But the problem with that, as Lewis says, it has not been hushed up for the past 20 years, it's been chattered about all day long, but it's still in a mess. And he says the problem with the cultural view is that uh, people say things that are betraying an incorrect understanding of sex, that it is not that sex in itself is bad, but the way that it is used in our culture is wrong. So he talks about three reasons chastity is difficult. The first, he says, there's a lot of wrong thinking in our culture and that we are told over and over and over again that sexual indulgence is associated with health, normality, youth, frankness, good humor, all sorts of good things. It's kind of like the old cigarette ads that used to tell you it was good for your lungs to smoke. But the problem with that is that it is a lie. And the problem that lies behind this is the worldview that says humans are not made in the image of God. Humans are just another animal. And the more that we live into our instincts and follow our instincts, that is the way to become authentic. And we see that playing out day by day in our culture, Uh, and this is... uh, direct contradiction to the Christian worldview that we are made in God's image and designed to thrive when we live according to God's law. The second thing Lewis says is people have a sense of futility that chastity is impossible. But he says a thing has to be attempted that if you don't try, you certainly won't succeed. And he said we won't succeed by any merely human efforts that we have to ask for God's help And he says that this process of failing and trying again is the thing that produces virtue, that it trains us and habits of the soul. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. So he then finishes by saying that we've been told repression of sex is dangerous. And he makes a distinction between repression and suppression. He says repression is when you thrust something into the subconscious at an early age so it can only come out in a disguised or unrecognizable form. But resisting a conscious desire, resisting temptation is biblical. That's not repression, and it's not going to lead you into psychosis. Uh, it is actually what scripture tells you to do, uh, as we talked about in our screw Tape class, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, he then also makes a very important point, especially for those of us here in the Bible Belt, that if anyone thinks Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. He says, the sins of the flesh are bad, but the least bad of all the sins. The worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport, backbiting and gossiping, the pleasures of hatred— And the problem with that is that we have the animal self and the diabolical self within each of us. And he says the diabolical self is by far the worse. And he says a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But he sums it up by saying, of course, it is better not to be either of those. So Lewis's talk caused quite a reaction. It made the headlines in the newspapers. Uh, But it's interesting that Lewis held the line exactly where Scripture teaches the line should be held. And then he moves on this week to the chapter on Christian marriage. And he says that this last chapter in talking about chastity and sex was really mostly negative. He discussed what was wrong with sexuality, but he says a little about how it's supposed to work rightly. And he says he's a little uncomfortable dealing with marriage for two reasons. The first is the Christian doctrines on this are unpopular. And this was in the 1940s. The second is when he wrote this, he says he's never been married, so he can only speak of the idea of marriage. Um, But he says he can't leave the subject out because it's so important. And he says in Scripture, based on Christ's own words, that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. That's what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And when Christians say, that Jesus said this, he was not expressing a feeling, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says a lock and a key are one mechanism, or a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us it's two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things up and spitting them out again. Now this idea of male and female is so important and it pervades scripture. Um, It is part of that complementarity and creation that starts in the book of Genesis and goes all the way through the Bible. And this is one of the reasons that there are strong theological objections to same-sex marriage in the church. So part of what Lewis is trying to help us recover here is a biblical understanding that men and women, both created in God's image, are different from each other, and they are complementary to each other. Lewis then goes on to say marriage is for life. Christianity teaches this. He says different churches have slightly different views about divorce, Um, and says it's a pity Christians should disagree at all about it. But he says Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as a kind of surgical operation. And he says they're all agreed it's more like having both legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What they all disagree with, what all Christians disagree with, is the modern view that it's a simple readjustment of partners to be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another or when either of them falls in love with someone else. Now this is worth pausing for because the church has a very different standard than the culture here. Christians believe that marriage is for life. The scriptures teach us that, and it is one of the bedrock things of the church and of culture. And as our society has begun to fray around this issue, and we have um, begun to think of divorce as not a big deal at all, we have um, cheapened the idea of marriage. Now let me hasten to add that there are times even in scripture where there are good reasons for divorce. But what Lewis is saying here is that there's this casual attitude toward marriage that he could see coming even in the 1940s that we're seeing the full flower of in our culture today. Lewis then ties in something interesting about justice and promise keeping. And he says, we don't think about this angle very much. We may look at the angle of chastity and think people shouldn't live together or Um, have serial marriages, um, that is S-E-R-I-A-L, serial marriages, um, but that there's a justice component to this. He says, justice includes the keeping of promises. Everyone married in a church has made a public solemn promise to stick to his spouse till death. The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is in the same position as any other promise. If, as modern people are always telling us, the sexual impulse is just like our other impulses, it ought to be treated that way, and as their indulgence is controlled by our promises, so should its be. If, as Lewis says, it is not like our other impulses but morbidly inflamed, we should be specially careful not to let it lead us into dishonesty. To this, someone may reply he regarded the promises made in church as a mere formality and never intended to keep it. Who then was he trying to deceive when he made it? God? That was unwise. Himself? That was not much wiser. The bride or bridegroom or the in-laws? That was treacherous. Most often, I think, the couple or one of them hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were imposters, they cheated. If they are still contented cheats, I have nothing to say to them who would urge the high and hard duty of chastity on people who have not yet wished to be merely honest. If they've now come to their senses and want to be honest, their promise already made constrains them. And this, you will see, comes under the heading of justice, not that of chastity. Lewis then compares chastity and perjury. And he says, if people don't believe in permanent marriage, maybe it's better they should live together unmarried than they should make vows they don't mean to keep. It's true, by living together without marriage, they'd be guilty and Christianized of fornication. But one fault is not mended by adding another. Unchastity is not improved by adding perjury. The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. I'm going to say that again. The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, it shouldn't be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to that passion's own nature. It's demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impels them to do. And this whole section is so important because the cultural understanding of being in love And thus, the cultural understanding of marriage has invaded the church in a big way. One of the best correctives to that in recent years is the excellent book that Tim Keller wrote that I would commend to you called The Meaning of Marriage, which talks about what Christian marriage is, which is profoundly different from the cultural understanding. And Lewis explicates that very thing in this next section, where he compares feeling in love versus commitment. And he says, and of course, the promise made when I'm in love and because I'm in love to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise has to be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. He cannot promise never to have a headache or always to feel hungry. But what, it may be asked, is the use of keeping people together if they are no longer in love. Lewis says there are several sound social reasons to provide a home for children, to protect the woman who's probably sacrificed or damaged her own career by getting married from being dropped whenever the man's tired of her. But there's another reason of which I'm very sure, though I find it a little hard to explain. It's hard because so many people cannot be brought to realize that when B is better than C, A may be even better than B. They like thinking in terms of good and bad, not of good, better, and best, or bad, worse, and worst. They want to know whether you think patriotism is a good thing. If you reply that it is, of course, far better than individual selfishness, but that it is inferior to universal charity and should always give way to universal charity when the two conflict, they think you're being evasive. I hope no one will make this mistake about what I'm now going to say. What we call being in love is a glorious state, and in several ways, good for us. It helps us, makes us generous and courageous, it opens our eyes, not only to the beauty of the beloved, but to all beauty, and it subordinates, especially at first, our merely animal sexuality. In that sense, love is the great conqueror of lust. No one in his senses would deny that being in love is far better than either common sensuality or cold self-centeredness. But feelings are fleeting. But as I said before, the most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of our own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, But there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state of being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending they lived happily ever after is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? And what Lewis is talking about here is exactly what is wrong in our culture right now. We have made an idol of the idea of being in love. We have exalted the feeling of being in love as the greatest thing that there can be and that somehow you are not complete, um, you can't be happy if you're not in a relationship where you feel that way. Now, one of the greatest problems with this in the church when we buy into that is we automatically say that all people who are single are less than in some way. We ignore the fact that we are complete in Christ. So that whole scene, uh, those of you of a certain age will remember the movie Top Gun, where they sing you've lost that loving feeling in the bar. That is not what it's all about. You know, it's that that movie, the whole idea is if that loving feeling is gone, then if you can't get it back, You'd probably better move on. And, you know, there's a a terrible song um, from Meatloaf, of all places, that says, uh, talks about, I need you, I want you, but I ain't ever going to love you, but two out of three ain't bad. And the problem is our culture is bought into that kind of thing. And it's so important that the church learn to teach into this, particularly with younger people, and help them to understand that this whole concept of romanticizing being in love is not the meaning of life. Now, let me hasten to add, there's nothing wrong with being in love. It's a beautiful thing, but it cannot be the thing that you base your relationship, your purpose in life on. And Lewis is drawing here from St. Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 13, which is probably the most often read passage in weddings, and I would submit to you the least understood and appreciated, because if people actually knew what that passage meant, they wouldn't be reading it, because it's not what they think it is. Remember what that passage says. We like to think, oh, it's the love chapter. Oh, it's so beautiful. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. But that's not what the chapter is about. Listen to what it says. Love is patient, Love is kind. Love does not seek its own way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love believes the best. Love endures all things. That chapter, my friends, is all about actions. It is not even once about feelings. And it is about committed love, choosing the way that you behave, basing your love in action and and choices, not on feelings. So Lewis goes on to say that feeling in love is not the same thing as loving. He says, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love is distinct from being in love. It's not merely a feeling. Love is a deep unity maintained and deliberately strengthened by habit reinforced in Christian marriages uh, by the grace which both partners receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they don't like each other much, as you love yourself even when you don't like yourself. They can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, to be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity, This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. If you disagree with me, of course you'll say, he knows nothing about it, he's not married. And Lewis to his great credit says, you may quite possibly be right. But before you say that, make quite sure that you are judging me by what you really know from your own experience and from watching the lives of your friends, and not by ideas you have derived from novels and films. This is not so easy to do as people think. Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays and the cinema, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things we have really learned from life for ourselves. This is so important. This idea of love as a commitment, of seeking the other person's best as a choice, not a feeling, is the bedrock, not only of Christian marriage, but of Christian friendship and of the unity of the body of Christ. And that leads Lewis to the next part, but oh boy, do we have this disease badly in our culture today. The perfect partner. People get from books the idea that that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not, that is, they are not in love and that they are married to the wrong person, they think this proves they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. And this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the RAF, the Royal Air Force, and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Does this mean it would be better not to learn to fly and not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. What is more, and I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think this is, It is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. The man who has learned to fly and becomes a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who has settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. And what Lewis is saying here is this idea that you can only be happy if you find your right soulmate is a lie, and it's a lie straight from Satan. And unfortunately, all of us, I'm sure, know people that are constantly on the prowl, hoping that they find that perfect partner, and that when they meet that perfect person, that suddenly they will be complete, that that person will solve all their problems, that they will be happy at last. And the problem with that is that not only is it not scriptural, but it's a lie. And as Lewis says here, it sets you up for disappointment, and it makes you think the problem is always with the other person. And of course, Christianity tells us, as that wonderful uh, quotation from G.K. Chesterton, when the London Times had a headline that says, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor and said, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. Each one of us is a center. We are the problem in our own world. As only by Christ's redemptive love that we are able to begin to overcome that. So Lewis says, this is one little part of what Christ meant by saying a thing won't really live unless it first dies. It's simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That's the worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow, and you'll find you are in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned codger for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It's much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back to the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Another notion we get from novels and plays is that falling in love is something quite irresistible, something that just happens to you like measles. And because they believe this, some married people throw up the sponge and give in when they find themselves attracted by a new acquaintance. But I'm inclined to think these irresistible passions are much rarer in real life than in books, at any rate when one's grown up. When we meet someone beautiful and clever and sympathetic, of course we ought in one sense to admire and love those qualities. But is it not very largely in our own choice whether this love shall or shall not turn into what we call being in love? No doubt if our minds are full of novels and plays and sentimental songs and our bodies full of alcohol, we shall turn any love we feel into that kind of love. Just as if you have a rut in your path, all the rainwater will run into that rut. And if you wear blue spectacles, everything you see will turn blue. But that will be our own fault. Lewis then talks about Christian versus civil marriage. He says, the Christian conception of marriage is one. The other is the quite different question. How far Christians, if they are voters or members of parliament, ought to try to force their views of marriage on the rest of the community by embodying them in the divorce laws? A great many people seem to think that if you're a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce difficult for everyone. I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. My own view is that churches should frankly recognize that the majority of the British people are not Christians and therefore cannot be expected to live Christian lives. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage— one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, the other governed by the church with rules enforced by her. The distinction ought to be quite sharp so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. Now, that last part is very interesting, and it is if you are um, someone who's traveled in French countries, um, you will recognize that, that that's exactly the way it is in France that in order to be married in the eyes of the law, you go with witnesses and you are married at the town hall. And that makes you fully married for taxes and legal purposes. But if you want to get married in the church, you have to go through a completely separate ceremony. And they very often are not on the same day. And the Christian marriage, the sacrament of marriage, The marriage that is based in the Christian understanding of love and everything else is only chosen by those who want to do that and believe that that is an important part of their faith and their life together. And part of what has happened in our country, and part of the reason that there's so much pressure on the institution of marriage, is that our ideas are all mixed up about this. And so... Um, redefining marriage in the way that it's happened um, in our country is much more problematic than if that were to be redefined that way in France, where the government's definition of marriage has nothing to do with what the church does. So it is certainly something um, that Lewis was anticipating uh, where the culture might go and has some interesting ideas about it here. So there's a whole philosophical discussion that we will not get into tonight about the whole idea of legislating morality and where, how do you draw the line in that. Um, and Lewis would be um, probably in the middle of the continuum about that now. Not willing to cede to the whole culture over, but saying that we must be careful not to be belligerent in trying to force Christian views on people who are not Christians, and that that leads to that view of God that we talked about early on of the old man looking around snooping for someone who's having a good time and trying to get them to stop it. So um, Lewis concludes this chapter with what he rightly calls an unpopular doctrine. It was unpopular then, it's even more unpopular now. And he talks about this idea of wives obeying their husbands and the fact that St. Paul talks about the man as the head. And he says there are two obvious questions. Why should there be a head at all? Why not complete equality? And why should it be the man? And the the other reason he brings this up is that um, this is one of the most practical issues that comes up with marriage. So Lewis says in terms of why there should be a head at all, that comes from the idea that marriage is permanent and that As he says, as long as the husband and wife are agreed, no question of a head need arise, and we can hope that will be the normal state of affairs in Christian marriage. But when there is a real disagreement, what should happen? Talk it over, of course, but he says, I'm assuming they've done that and still failed to reach agreement. What do they do next? They can't decide by majority vote. For in a council of two, there's no majority. Surely only one or the other of two things can happen. Either they must separate and go their own ways, or else one or the other must have a casting vote. If marriage or it's permanent, one or the other party must, in the last resort, have the power of deciding the family policy. You can't have a permanent association without a constitution. He then goes on to talk about why he believes it must be the man. So he says he's not married, but so far as he can tell, even women who want to be the heads of their own house don't usually admire the same state of things when they see it going on next door. He says that this woman, this mythical woman, may say, poor Mr. X, why he allows that appalling woman to boss him around that way is more than I can imagine. I don't think she's even very nattered if anyone mentions the fact of her own headship. There must be something unnatural about the rule of wives over husbands because the wives seem to be half ashamed of it and despise the husbands they rule. But there's another reason, and here I speak quite frankly as a bachelor, because it's a reason you can see from outside even better than from inside. The relations of the family to the outer world, what might be called its foreign policy, must depend in the last resort on the man because he always ought to be and is usually more just to outsiders. And what Lewis means here is that a woman is primarily fighting for her children and her husband against the rest of the world. Naturally and rightly, in some sense, their claims override for her all other claims. She is the special trustee of their interests. The function of the husband is to see that this natural preference of hers is not given its head. He has the last word in order to protect other people from the intense family patriotism of the wife. If anybody doubts this, let me ask a simple question. If your dog has bitten the child next door, or if your child has hurt the dog next door, who would you sooner have to deal with, the master of that house or the mistress? Or if you're a married woman, let me ask you this question. Much as you admire your husband, would you not say that his chief failing is his tendency not to stick up for his rights and yours against the neighbors as vigorously as you would like? A bit of an appeaser. So you can take that part uh, as you like, uh, but I think what Lewis would say that he would insist on is not his own opinions about this, but what St. Paul says in Ephesians, Um, which is all grounded in the idea of mutual submission to Christ, that we are all to be submitted to Christ, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving up his very life for her, and that wives are to submit to their husbands in that same way, and that the reality is that both husbands and wives are given Amazing gifts, and that it is by working together that they model that biblical complementarity and completion. So, Lewis has packed a lot into this short chapter. It is remarkable to me that he was writing this um, 80 years ago and he was seeing exactly what we see so much today. I do a lot of weddings, I do a lot of marriage counseling, and it is so profoundly sad to me how many people um, have kind of bought into this cultural view that marriage is kind of a disposable good, that it's good for as long as it feels good, and then if it doesn't feel good or you meet someone else who's better, then there's no moral issue with moving on. So Lewis, again, I think is a, a good guide for us here. Um, helping us to cling to the scriptures. I would commend to you, if you haven't read 1 Corinthians 13 in a while, to go back and do that. I would also commend to you um, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, it's a great book on this. And another terrific book with a wonderful Lewis connection is a book that's called A Severe Mercy by a man named Sheldon Van Auken. If you don't know that book, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, it will make you cry, but it is a beautiful book that is full of profound wisdom, not only about marriage, but about grief and loss and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So just summing up here, Lewis gives us some much-needed counter-cult- countercultural wisdom from Scripture, is for life, that there are justice and promise-keeping aspects to marriage, feeling and love is very different from the commitment that is part and parcel of Christian marriage. Feeling in love is very different from what it means to love in a Christian sense. And this ties us back to that opening music. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Uh, Jesus is the one that shows us what real love is. It is self-sacrificing, committed love. Lewis talks about the myth of the perfect partner, Christian versus civil marriage, and headship and complementarity. And when he delivered that talk, it was all done in about 12 minutes. Quite remarkable. So let's close with this passage from chapter 11 of book 4, Um, And think about this through the lens of what we've talked about tonight. So very important. It's a great way of looking um, at marriage and relationships. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the biblical wisdom contained in this chapter. Lord, we confess to you our selfishness and our ideas about being in love and wanting to be the center of attention and having others serve us. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts to turn that around, that we would seek to love and to serve others in a sacrificial way that in doing that, that we would love as you loved us, the way that you have commanded us to love, and that in doing that, we would grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, your son, in whose name we pray, amen.